Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today, you know, we have a really amazing founder that is joining us a founder that he's going to walk us through his journey and through what he's building with his company, the building, the scaling, the financing, all of that. We're going to be talking about how he was able to, and his company, his team, you know, to get the first enterprise customer, how they went during the fundraising journey, because it's been 10 years that they've been pushing this and how the landscape has evolved. They're actually based out of the UK. And then also how they went about creating a new category as well as the lessons learned, you know, during the pandemic and also the macro environment dealing with the downturns. So, again, super inspiring the episode that we have ahead of us. And without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sultan Murad Saidov. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Excited for this. So, originally, you were born in Russia, in Moscow. You know, you grew up there and... Uh, with your parents, but obviously there were certain changes there with the Soviet Union, and that ended up landing you in the UK. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, so my um, uh, my family's from a, a place called uh, Dagestan, which is a, a part of Russia. And after the, the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, my parents are scientists, and that was one of the professions um, that uh, was impacted by the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they ended up looking for ways to to restart their lives and uh, found an opportunity to to move to the UK, which is a pretty big reset. Um, our mother went from being a neuroscientist to uh, having to uh, uh, start a career in frontline work. Um, our father went from being a physicist to having to, to reboot his life. And as kids, um, we didn't appreciate just how much of a privilege they gave us uh, by coming to the UK and giving us uh, one of the the best educations in the world, one of the best you know places to access uh, networks and opportunities, and that's something we we definitely became aware of as we uh, started our own careers and realized just how how much of a privilege it, it was to be uh, given that education, given that access, and uh, and certainly, uh, and I'll, I'll get to this as uh, one of the the influences of uh, what what led to Beamery and and the the story of the last ten years. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Now, obviously. That's a pretty big deal, you know, for you to experience your parents reinventing themselves, for you to land in a new country. You know, I'm sure that that's, that has shaped quite a bit who you are. How so? I think in many ways. Obviously, uh, life, life experiences shape both what you think is important in the world and, and who you are yourself. I think in my case, so I started the company with my brother, and we were both shaped similarly by, uh, by these experiences. One of the ways was the realization that where you work is one of the most important choices you make in life, whether you work for yourself or whether you work in a company, and yet it's one of the least fair and least informed. You know, the, the choices available to folks going through national upheavals, like, uh, like our parents, uh, are very limited and not entirely up to themselves. But for most people, the, uh, the question of how do you get to uh, start a company? How likely are you to raise money? How likely are you to get employment? So much of it is actually a passport lottery. Um, so much of it is not uh, not fair based on the opportunities that, that you have access to. Uh, and that's one of the things that 
we, uh, my brother and I, spent many years uh, discussing, you know, what could be fairer? How could more people wake up in the morning and get a fairer chance? And, uh, and we started to realize, you know, there are things you can do to create more access, uh, make it easier for people to be found for opportunities or to find organizations where they can make an impact. And certainly the, the democratization of that is, uh, is a big thing that is going to happen in the world, I think, in the coming decades. But for us personally, you know, that, that kind of mission had been niggling at us uh, for a long time before we started Beamering. And, uh, and when we started our own careers, which happened to be in, for both of us in finance during the, the, the 2008 recession, that became even clearer. You know, one of the folks that was um, interviewing alongside me when I started working at Goldman Sachs had five job offers um, and ended up getting none of them because of a sort of last minute recession driven change and ended up uh, having to actually do uh, deliveries for a while and didn't end up working in finance. And it's one of those unfair things in life. It's not really about what you're capable of. It's about, you know, the lottery of how employment works, now these chances work. Um, so I think that's what really shaped us, you know, the realization of quite how meaningful uh, that is, and also, you know, quite how lucky we were and, and how much of a chance we had to to start tackling this problem. Now, in your case, you you got the entrepreneurial bug very early on. I mean, while you were at school, you were already building computers and websites. So what do you think this entrepreneurial drive comes from? You know, I think, obviously, the, there are some patterns for how... Uh, Kids who migrate to a new country uh, are often more likely to, to have that kind of bug. I know that's you know one of the principles that some VC firms have talked about, including you know Sequoia and others. I think for me personally, um, it was partly an element of you know inspiration by my parents' story, and certainly not something I appreciated at the time. But in retrospect, I think that was part of it. Um, but partly also just a, uh, a a mindset I've always had of being both curious about most things and wanting to to try and do things better. Um, I remember, you know, the actual, the first uh, venture I ever had was um, starting to uh, sell electronic speakers that I found in the early days of iPods when they didn't have their own speakers. And then I found out that you, uh, you, you could build computers um, in the early days of, uh, of being able to, to do so cheaply and started trying to do that. And so, uh, and then at, when I was still at school, I started building websites and video games and uh and then found people who wanted uh that to, to pay for that so i think i've always had this sort of mindset of learning things and then uh it was less about the financial side of it or the sort of uh trying to get a financial outcome um especially in the early days and more just a, a constant desire to, to try things out and do things that i didn't see other people doing that i found interesting so one of the companies that you started was delivering boost and uh, that was actually, you know, at the time that you got into Oxford. So how, how was it like, you know, like that uh, first experience of, um, you know, really building a company and, and, and at the same time, which you were pursuing your studies? So, so I'll, I'll tell you what actually led to that. So just before I went to uh, Oxford, I uh, spent in the UK, quite a lot of people do gap years in between school and university. And in my gap year, I spent um, half of it, six months in um, this scheme organized by Deloitte, where you spend six months doing rotations uh, within Deloitte, and then afterwards they help sponsor you through university, and then you become you know, a representative for them there. When I was in Deloitte, um, I ended up getting this idea for the teams that I was working in um, to send uh, faxes for team food and coffee orders so that um, people didn't have to go pick it up. 
um, because I'd be working in teams that were working after hours and then getting team meals, expensing them and so on. So I built this little website as a form for teams to just give their orders, what food you want, what coffees you want, and then fax that to like Starbucks, restaurants. And, um, and building that little thing just as a convenience um, while I was there, when I then went to university, I uh, realized that there's lots of cases where, and this is obviously before you had like Deliveroo and Uber Eats and all the things we have now, there's lots of cases where uh, it was uh, inconvenient to try and order food or drink, especially as a university student, um, uh, the, the latter. And, and so I did the same thing, um, built these like forms and sites and found some local uh, drivers that I could send these orders to to pick it up. And uh, and unfortunately, this is before the times of either drivers or people having iPhones and smartphones. So a lot of this was phone, SMS, and fax-based. Um, would have looked uh, different if I was starting it just a few years later. Um, but that was the that was the the, the business then. A uh, I guess a thing that now most of us uh, have through things like Uber Eats and so on. So I guess what what was what was the lesson that you learned? Because I mean, the the business obviously you ended up going to Goldman Sachs and you ended up winding the business down, but. What was the lesson you know that you took away from you from from that rodeo? Well, it's funny. I remember um, when I was uh, asking some friends who were investors, or uh, it was actually friends of friends uh, who uh, who were investors, what they thought about the idea. Because uh, I was doing this myself, I was like building the site, um, and I actually had a friend uh, who was who was uh, helping helping me out with um, starting that business. But I didn't know anything about fundraising, certainly didn't have um, funds myself to invest in this stuff. And the response I got from the few investors I managed to reach out to was, uh, but, you know, Just Eat can do this. Just Eat was a company that was uh, doing it at the time. And they weren't doing either this or business deliveries. But they said, well, why, you know, why, why would we invest? They were already doing this. Um, and uh, similar responses came from folks who just thought, you know, this isn't something that's scalable. And of course, now we have Deliveroo, Uber Eats, and of course, it wasn't a bad idea. Um, but one of the lessons was to uh, not over rely on the importance of, you know, opinions of people who uh, don't understand why the idea is relevant or becoming relevant, and to have more confidence in creating your own proof points. Because, you know, one of the reasons I ended up winding that business down, other than I had a job lined up, and I didn't have the sort of financial security to keep doing it is because um, I didn't really uh, have the self-confidence to, at the time, double down and carve the path to, to making this a bigger thing. And I certainly didn't uh, uh, think about how to scale something that was actually working in a pretty scalable way. I didn't really have that, that ambition or confidence that it was doable. So I think both on the how you think about seeking investment and where it matters or doesn't matter, and how you think about having the confidence to, uh, to validate and, and build on ideas that are not yet proven. Uh, it's certainly something that uh, influenced a lot the the kind of ambition I later applied to to starting Beamery. So so Beamery obviously came you know to to life you know as an idea initially while you were at Goldman Sachs you know that's how you started to incubate what ended up becoming Beamery. But what happened there? I mean, it was saying during the downturn you know on the financial crisis, uh, and you started to see people you know getting laid off left and right and. And how did you start to think about like how to help out and and how to do something more along skill sets versus you know CV based you know type of background? Yeah, so the the beginning of what led to Beamery was um, an experiment that I started uh, just as I was uh, beginning my uh, time at Goldman's to help people get found for jobs if they lost their job or didn't get a job, especially in, in finance. 
And myself at the time, you know, part of the reason I ended up working in finance is because I didn't really know what other um, well-paid roles or careers I could really apply for. You can't apply to every company. And especially in a place uh, like London, you most people tend to hear about the big firms, the big banks, the big consultancy firms. And so lots of people were suddenly without jobs. And I made a da database to help those people be found by other companies, startups, um, firms that... Um, uh, they might not have heard of or applied to. And one of the ways I try to build that database, um, especially because of the coaching I was doing for kids from other privileged backgrounds at the time, was to index it towards things that weren't uh, people's, the schools that people went to or the, or the degrees people had, and more towards people's skills and interests. And uh, ended up creating this, this profile building um, uh, engine for an alternative to CVs, because for people finishing school, your CV doesn't mean very much. And certainly a lot of companies just hire based on who went to the best schools, which is, um, you know, one of the things that creates a lot of bias. And so that that early experiment um, actually ended up finding quite a few uh, of my own friends jobs, uh, quite a few people started getting placed. But I didn't at the time, um, know exactly how to uh, turn this into a bigger thing. But more importantly, it made me question, why is it that the only way that people find work in this uh, 21st century through either recruitment agencies or applications. You know, when you think about how sophisticated our uh, customer experiences are, how organizations uh, are able to use systems like Salesforce to track their customer data and then create these really frictionless experiences to retarget customers. You know, as a consumer, you go on Uber or you go on Netflix and you have this really effortless personalized experience. And then you, as a candidate apply for a job takes four hours, and you never hear back. Or as an employee, you have no idea, you know, who to speak to and so on. And so the realization was that actually, uh, there was something to this skills and people centric database um, that I was uh, starting. Uh, and there was something to being able to create an equivalent thing, not as a database, but actually as a software as something that companies could use um, to look at their employees and candidates as people rather than as tickets in a process. Um, and that's and, and that's what led to um, to the, the transition into building Beamery and building what was initially the first uh, CRM for talent uh, with that skills and, and intelligence behind it. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C 
all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And at what point does it become evident that uh, Goldman Sachs is not uh, your way of going, you know, in terms of path and that you needed to, uh, you know, really go at it on your own and, and build this thing? Yeah, that's a, that was a tough question, um, especially because it was a, uh, a hard risk to justify at a time when we didn't have um, you know, financial security to, uh, to, to necessarily be, be confident in, in switching to Beamery. There were uh, two motivators. One was, you know, I was initially doing both uh, Beamery and working at Goldman's at the same time and actually uh, hired an engineer that I was paying out of my own salary just to help build Beamery. And so it came a point as, as the early version of our product was starting to, uh, to work that I, I just couldn't do both things well. I couldn't really uh, me- meaningfully double down on expanding Beamer and validating it and continue to, to do my job well. Um, but also the level of uh, conviction and excitement I got about just how big an opportunity this is. You know, like I said, uh, the question of where you work and why you wake up in the morning, it's one of the you know, biggest things you can change in the world. And so the, uh, the opportunity to actually make a meaningful dent in such a significant part of how the world works and how people have an opportunity to, uh, to build their own lives uh, felt worth it. It felt like it was worth the gamble. And, uh, uh, and when I then convinced my, my brother to join me on this journey, it certainly was a hard one to convince our parents uh, that that was a good idea, but, uh, but they, 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 they were behind us um, uh, emotionally. And, and so we, we, we took a big risk. And I think in, in retrospect, you know, the... It is exciting living in a time now, 10 years on, when it is so much easier to have networks in Europe uh, of people who've done this before and people you could speak to. When we were starting out, I didn't know any founders. Um, we actually ended up, after starting, uh, starting out, uh, f- finding out about accelerators. And at the time, uh, you know, this, this is before you had as many of these uh, organizations as you have today, but you had Y Combinator and you had uh, AngelPad. And we came across one company that was based in the UK that said that um, they were starting a company in London like us, didn't really know how to scale it across the world and came across AngelPad. And so uh, that was the only thing we applied to just off the back of that recommendation. And uh, at the time, we were making some revenue, but didn't know how to you know, go after enterprise companies or make this big, ambitious impact we were after. And we certainly didn't have uh, funding. We uh, took out a, a loan. We were paying out of this out of our own money. And we ended up going to uh, to New York, which is uh, where AngelPad was running, and went out there with no networks, um, also uh, couch surfing because we didn't have enough money to uh, to pay for apartments. Uh, I actually uh, ended up sleeping on a chair for a week <laughs> because we couldn't really uh, uh, afford to run the business and and, and build it uh, and give ourselves a place to stay at the same time. But looking back on it, you know, ten years ago, the, the reaction we got when we were uh, starting out and starting to fundraise. Uh, was in Europe non-existent because there were so few people to talk to. In the US, um, was often what are two people from Goldman Sachs doing starting a tech company, and you know why are you coming out here? Um, if you do come out here, you have to move here. Uh, the first investors that were interested said, "Well, you're going to have to move to San Francisco." Um, and uh, we ended up actually uh, in the course of you know the two months we were there, taking over a hundred meetings, and some of those were with people that uh, we met only because they knew somebody who was an investor. 
because we just have no networks and nothing, uh, no way of meeting people. And in retrospect, you know, I think the world has changed a lot in 10 years. And now uh, it is so much easier, both in Europe and in places outside of San Francisco, to have access, you know, to find people who've done this before, have advice. Um, certainly, that was part of what made it risky at the time, kind of going into more of an unknown. That's amazing. And obviously, we've had uh, Thomas, the founder of AngelPath as well, you know, on the podcast. So, you know, if any listener is interested in, in hearing that story, go for it. Now, in this case, what ended up becoming Beamery in terms of business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah, and I'll quickly say, Tomas is uh, amazing. So definitely recommend folks listening to that episode. Um, so we make money uh, like so many other enterprise uh, B2B software. We charge subscription usually on a multi-annual basis. And that uh, subscription, and this is from you know the world's uh, largely biggest companies, we, we tend to focus on um, the, the Fortune 500, the world's biggest organizations. Uh, originally, uh, the core focus was subscription based on number of seats. Because similar to a company like Salesforce, who sells seats for their CRM, our first offering was for talent acquisition teams, uh, you know, recruiters, sources, people within companies who are helping hire talent. And so we made software and we would charge on the number of seats. Um, as our software evolved and as our technologies evolved, um, the same principle of so uh, software pricing uh, applied, but evolved away from just seats and towards different offerings and the value we provided. You know, we now um, serve employee experiences and so forth. So now we have these bundles um, around uh, how an organization can purchase different value packages for what we do. So I guess in this case, how did you guys go about finding the first enterprise customer? You know, the first one is always the toughest one. So how, how was that process like? This was um, actually very tricky for us because, you know, in, in retrospect, there are uh, usually two set ways that you sell enterprise software uh, to your first customers. The first is sell something simple that can be piloted. You know, if you are in the world of recruiting, that might be an interview tool. You, know, you can go to an, a Facebook or an Amazon uh, and you don't have to sell to the whole company if it's a simple tool. You could have one team try it out. The challenge for us was um, the very value proposition we had was about uh, the whole organization using us as the source of truth for people data. So we couldn't really have a small version. It would just have to be a very different business. And, and so we, we didn't really have a version of our, our approach that could be easily piloted or used in that way. And so um, the, the thing we had to figure out was how to have large organizations for whom we were building our product get to try out our early software without the, us having the credibility. You know, we were, um, for all intents and purposes, uh, first-time founders uh, with un unproven track records, certainly in HR. And so we ended up finding organizations that um, worked with the clients we were targeting, uh, for example, recruitment marketing agencies. Our first customer didn't actually know they were a customer of ours. Um, there were companies like Spotify and actually Just Eat, um, ironically, given my previous business, who ran their um, graduate schemes powered by our technology, but they had no idea because they were actually using agencies that came to us to, to run the technology and the experience. Um, and then our first ever customer who was a real customer is a company called VMware, who similarly were trying to do bold and ambitious things with attracting more diverse talent, sourcing candidates, all the things that we were offering, um, but we didn't have the credibility to sell to them. You know, Selling to this large organization, having references and all of these things that you need to have a big global contract. Uh, but they had a relationship with a big employer brand agency who actually heard about us through blogs and things we were writing about this new category 
uh, and came to us and said, hey, um, what, what you guys are doing sounds relevant to what our client's trying to ask for. And they brought us in as essentially the tech software provider behind the, the change that they were contracted for. And then after a year, VMware just um, uh, contracted with us directly and said, hey, we'd love to keep uh, expanding what we do with you guys. And, and they're a you know, customer to this day uh, have grown with us. Um, but that was hard. Um, that was hard because we, we didn't really know how to get that first client or that credibility. Uh, it was hard to build and validate the product. Uh, we kept being tempted to go into a different proposition, into mid-market, um, because it was so hard to go after the business we actually uh, were trying to build. Um, but once we had that first credibility, it, it, it rapidly accelerated. And how much capital have you guys raised to date? So just north of 200 million. So obviously, I mean, you were alluding to it earlier. I mean, the landscape has changed quite a bit. I guess 10 years ago, startups were not even a thing, you know, in Europe. I mean, nothing. I mean, even I remember the ecosystem in New York was still even forming with companies like DoubleClick and stuff like that. So I guess in your guys' case, like, how has it been the experience of going from one cycle to the next, you know, when it came to fundraising? What was the landscape to at that point, you know, on the venture side and, and what do you see now in comparison? So it's been a, a different experience at each milestone we, we'd we gone through. The um, experience I mentioned uh, after AngelPad, we almost ended up raising a round in the US and actually um, we ended up living in uh, San Francisco, New York for about six months, thought we'd end up moving there. Um, for a number of reasons uh, that that didn't uh, work out, and we ended up finding actually uh, a partner from Goldman and some other angels who um, did a smaller round that um, eventually culminated in us finding uh, not venture capitalists in the traditional sense, but actually uh, venture arms of uh, major businesses in Europe that took a bet on us. There was a uh, Polish job board called Grupa Pratsui, uh, who we met at an event when we came back from AngelPad. Um, and there's this um, organization called Eden Red. And so it was um, uh, the venture arms of those organizations that took a bet on us. And it was after we got our um, first uh, major clients, enterprise clients, uh, which was VMware and also uh, Facebook, that we ended up raising our first uh, venture round through Index. And again, you know, I think there are uh, different types of scenarios and firms, but for us, that was a very different experience to anything that happened before, in part because we already had some proof or credibility, and in part because the, um, uh, the partner we found, uh, we found and were found by at Index, Jan, is um, you know, a visionary investor who, who took, a, took a big bet and had an understanding of the ambition that we were, were driving towards. And I think investment afterwards became very different because by that point, you know, we, we were 2016, 17, when we raised our Series A, the European ecosystem started maturing and there already started uh, becoming more of a landscape for uh, enterprise software and, and this kind of scene expanding in Europe. We didn't have to justify that there was talent that could build this based in Europe in the way that we did when we were first starting in 2013, 14. Um, and so I think things really accelerated. And then our follow-on rounds uh, came through uh, European investors, uh, EQT, and then most recently, uh, a, uh, an amazing pension fund called Ontario Teachers and their venture arm. And I think in all of those cases, the, the experience ended up being uh, less and less 
about the the sort of search for organizations and more about relationships you've already built up over time. And then by the time you come to looking at a, a fundraising round, you know, having those conversations uh, rather than treating the, the funding as a sort of reactive process. Now, in this case for you guys, I mean, how has it been to navigating the downturns, no? Like the pandemic, the macro environment now, I mean, what what has that been the experience like? You know, it's um, it's been tough uh, at a both personal and professional level in a few of the things that have happened over the last couple of years. I think what was really interesting for us as a company that kept growing at a accelerating rate, you know, from when we've had that first customer onwards, uh, not knowing how the pandemic and recession would impact us, because it's a known thing that the, you know, the first thing that a lot of organizations cut in a time of crisis is recruiting. And our business uh, is primarily driven by helping organizations, or at least was at the time, now it's more diversified, but it was certainly at the time uh, in 2019, 2020, primarily driven by helping organizations drive uh, talent acquisition, hiring better candidates, doing it more efficiently. And so we didn't know what the impact would be on our customer base and our demand when suddenly organizations had this uncertainty and lockdown. And we didn't know whether to trust the signals we had in uh, the early stages of the pandemic. We still had pipeline. You know, we're an enterprise software business, which means that generally there's a lot of predictability. Uh, you generally see, you know, six months of pipeline that closes, converts at a pretty predictable rate. Um, the customers tend to be customers for at least one to three years. So a lot of that is, is quite predictable revenue. And uh, suddenly we entered an environment where you started getting, you know, advice from people about how similar downturns were essentially in the past meant that you should... Um, uh, start cutting staff. You had some some VCs famously publishing letters saying this is a time to cut deep, and so we started questioning our own assumptions. Like, do we trust our pipeline? Do we trust the uh, the way that we're building the business? Um, it was uh, also uh, ironic timing for us in terms of uh, us moving into a new and our first refurbished office in March 2020, two weeks before the the pandemic hit. And so we we decided to find a middle ground and to have some confidence in our signals, but not to be overconfident. So we paused hiring. And in retrospect, that was actually a mistake uh, because we ended up doing very well um, out of that uh, first six months of the pandemic. In fact, we discovered some really interesting patterns where clients of ours who stopped recruiting, doubled down on our software, but for different use cases, for nurturing talent, for doing preparing for the future. Uh, we actually had people starting to lean into things that we've been trying to prove, like using our technology for predicting whether you needed to hire and went to open jobs, but we, that we previously found hard to get people to, to look at. And now in this new environment, people started looking at it. But then over the ensuing two or three years, the HR industry that we're in um, went through the biggest up upheaval in decades. You know, organizations suddenly started talking about uh, employee retention and all of these uh, talent challenges that you know most people will have seen in some way or another. And we were on the forefront of being able to do something about it. It's you know who we are as a business from from um, and, and why we were founded, creating better outcomes for employees. But it became very difficult to um, prioritize because we had a lot of our organizations starting to demand some of the tools we were building in lots of different directions. And the predictability that we usually had also went out the window because even the clients we had that were trying to buy our software, sometimes we, had a, we actually had a few cases where the person who was about to sign our software suddenly ended up losing their job um, in the week that they were meant to sign it. 
So lots of our usual metrics for how we would prioritize whether we trust our pipeline went out the window. Um, so the last couple of years, we've really had to reinvent our own internal muscles for how we make decisions, how we help clients navigate change. We ended up building a small internal consulting practice of a few people with folks from organizations like McKinsey to help us become an advisory to how to navigate change, not just to deploy software, um, and really got to the heart of you know how uh, unique each organization creating a new category um, ends up being in their journey. You know, we we've had to uh, reinvent the wheel in a number of areas um, with with very you know few blueprints to follow for for how to navigate it. And I, uh, I'm sure many organizations have gone through the same thing. But for me personally, it's been um, uh, a pretty big learning journey. Now, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Beamery is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's uh, something I do think about a lot. I think there's two parts to it. One is it's a world in which everybody is able to access opportunities whether that's full-time work or otherwise, in a way that isn't biased by where you were born or where you went to school, but is or who you know, but is but is uh, equalized by what you're capable of and how you can show you and prove your potential. And the other side is where organizations are able to treat talent as the core thing that drives their business in a really meaningful way. You know, most CEOs of large public companies will say people are our greatest asset. But in practice, very few businesses actually understand their people and their people data and what skill sets that people have, who has potential, who's likely to leave, which people are going to drive business impact. You know, if you think about um, any goals any organization has, the number one driver of whether you meet those goals are your people. But how well do you know that? How do you know which people will make the impact and which of your objectives are actually at risk? Because of uh, whether or not you have people in the business. So uh, I truly think you know, we will enter a world in which the way organizations uh, think about their people and how much that drives the outcomes of their, their business and how to actually make that a data-driven process is going to be a radical change uh, to, to every organization. And, uh, and I think you know, the chance to be a part of it is, uh, is one of the most impactful things we can do. Now, let's say I put you into a time machine. Let's talk about the past here with a lesser reflection. Let's say I put you to a time machine and I bring you back in time to your days at Goldman Sachs, where you were thinking about doing something about the layoffs that you were seeing left and right. And you had the opportunity of sitting down, you know, right next to that younger Sultan. And you were able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, 10 years in with Bimari? I would probably pick not over intellectualizing things. You know, I'm someone who uh, I read a lot, I, I think a lot. And in the early days of, you know, starting the business, I uh, did the traditional thing of creating business plans and thinking about, you know, different trajectories. In reality, you know, that famous uh, Mike Tyson quote of everybody has a plan until they get punched is real. And I think you, you have to uh, optimize for being prepared, but not over valuing the the things you already know today you know one of the things that happened actually when we went through angelpad and one of the things i'm grateful to tomas for is that he and that experience helped us reset rather than thinking how do we make the business we've already built work we thought how do we take all the knowledge we've acquired and if we had to treat today as a new day what would we do now and we ended up uh 
pivoting the business at that point in time with that mindset. And I think, you know, nowadays I treat every day with a healthy skepticism of whether the priorities I've had at the end of the previous day are still the right priorities, whether me helping other people in my team or in the company may be more valuable than what I thought was important. And I think that mindset of uh, knowing how to pragmatically adapt and how to be prepared, but not uh, over trust, you know, the, the uh, insights that you had before is, is the biggest advice I'd give. It would have certainly helped us move a lot faster and make more rapid changes to the decisions we had. So for the people that are listening, Sultan, I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, you can drop me a message on, uh, on LinkedIn and, uh, and I, I would love to speak to, to anyone that wants to reach out. Amazing. Well, hey, easy enough. Well, Sultan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.